so in the year 2000, um, the rock band U2, anybody familiar with the band U2? Anybody, some of you are like, can I, can I be okay with them in church? Uh, the rock band U2, um, they released a song, some of you might remember it, called Peace on Earth. In fact, during 9-11, that song played over and over again in a few stations. It was actually one of the most popular songs in the country. Um, but U2 released a song called Peace on Earth. And the song was written in response to a 1998 IRA bombing in Northern Ireland. And I want you to listen to the opening lines. The opening lines said this, heaven on earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all this hanging around, sick of sorrow, sick of pain, sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. Now the song goes on to list the names of those who died in the bombing and even includes a lyric that came from the funeral of one of the victims. Now, interestingly, an Irish journalist called the song Peace on Earth the band's most agnostic song yet. And promoter Bill Graham said, Bono does little to hide the bitterness as he spits out the words, Peace on Earth. You see, for many... The absence of peace is evidence of the absence of God. So when the angels declared to the shepherds the night Christ was born, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, many today look at that declaration as something to be captured in a Hallmark card as a Christmas tradition rather than something that could be actually hoped for and realized. Or how else could you explain the current times that we live in? There's no national peace. Our country seems more divided than ever before politically. Our leaders lack integrity. Our political climate feels like a circus. And racial tensions seem to be at an all-time high. There's no international peace. Nations can't trust one another. So instead of using their resources to promote welfare, they use them to create weapons of destruction. And I'm sure if you've been watching the news cycle, you'll know that we are engaged in many different fronts and many different levels, including right now all the news cycle talking about Russia, Middle East, and again, the biggest one, North Korea. There's no national peace. There's no international peace. And there certainly is no inner peace, especially during this time of the year. I read a quote last year that I want to read again today. It says this, the stress of the holidays triggers sadness and depression for many people. This time of the year is especially difficult because there's an expectation of feeling merry and generous. According to the National Institute of Health, psychiatrists, psychologists, and other health professionals report a significant increase in patient complaining about depression. One North American survey reported a 45 or reported 45% of its respondents dreaded this season. So whether you're a believer in here this morning holding out hope for a time when peace on earth will be fully realized or maybe you're a skeptic like Bono frustrated with a phrase that feels more like a fairy tale than a reality, 
I want to invite you to join us for the next four weeks as we discover the biblical meaning of peace on earth. This morning, we're going to discuss where did this thing all start? How did we get here? Where did it all go wrong? And this morning, we'll talk about disconnected peace. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about reconnected peace. Not This Sunday will be how or where did it all go wrong? And next Sunday is can, we be, can it be fixed? The following Sunday, we'll explore the idea of false peace. How many of you know that there are counterfeit pieces that are out there? In that Sunday, we'll talk about the warning of counterfeit peace and counterfeit prophets and counterfeit words that are out there set to ensnare you and entrap you and remove your peace. And finally, we're going to have an amazing Christmas night service, Christmas Eve, um, and we're going to celebrate the Prince of Peace, perfect peace. And we're going to look back at the birth of Christ, and we're going to look ahead of when he finally returns to fully restore peace on earth. And what that will look like for you and I. Now, the story of peace starts where everything else starts. The story of peace starts where everything else begins. In the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And some of you, I was talking with a buddy of mine and we were kind of going back and forth. And I was sharing kind of my Christmas message. And he says, well, this isn't very Christmassy. (laughs) And I told him, it'll get there, trust me. But we're going to start where every story started in scripture. And that is in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And these first three chapters, if you're taking notes in the book of Genesis, is known as the creation narrative. Now, for the sake of note-taking and making sure that I kind of keep you all on the same page, we're going to divide this morning's message into two major sections. Chapters 1 and 2 will bring us a picture of peace. And finally, we'll finish with chapter 3 that will introduce us to a picture of sin. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we will be kind of jumping from here to there, so we'll stay in those first three chapters. So if you want to go there and jump with us, you can. And we'll also have it available for you here on the screens. But let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to open up with this idea of a picture of peace. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And scripture says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, what comes next is spectacular Keep your hand there on the page. But what comes next is spectacular because in the first three days of history, God using only his word will bring into existence day, night, the heavens, the earth, and the seas. And then in the next four to six days, the regions will be populated. The heavens with lights and birds the seas with fish and swarming creatures, and the earth with livestock and creeping things. Now, many people unfortunately miss the poetic beauty of what's really taking place in Genesis 1. Hear me out. God, through his word, is turning darkness into light and formlessness into shape. 
If you think about it, out of all the ways God could have introduced himself to humanity, he chose to first introduce us to the transformative power of his word and how his rule creates gardens out of chaos, gardens out of darkness. Now this brings us to the crown jewel of God's creation, you and I, mankind. And so if you're in Genesis 1, we're going to read verses 26 through 27. Scripture says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now there's two points I want to make regarding the image of God in mankind here in Genesis chapter 1. The first point I want to make is kind of a hot topic, and it's a topic of gender. And we all know why it's kind of a hot topic, because our culture seems to be in a bit of a confusion in terms of what exactly is gender anymore. Is it fluid? Can I be male and female depend on how I feel? There are all these different things that are going on regarding gender in this day and age. And Genesis chapter 1 and the image of God has something to say about that confusion. I want you to notice that God's image is revealed in both male and female. Now, this means there's two implications here. This means that God, the God of the Bible, the God that you and I serve, he's not sexist. Amen. Okay, some of you like that. He is not sexist. But this also means that the God that you and I serve considers gender to be holy. Now, hear me out. Men and women both bear his image. And because they both bear the image of God, they are equally valuable in his sight and in his kingdom. Our unique roles may differ, but our value and mission is the same. Like the body of Christ, the church, Both male and female are called to the same mission, but bring to the table equally valuable yet strategically different roles. Now this is important. Therefore, gender is sacred to God. Gender is holy to God. And in a culture that seeks to eliminate differences in the name of equality... The church can become a beautiful testimony of a a beautiful organization that celebrates these differences and that those differences reflect the glory of God. Are you with me? Go off on a tangent here. I think where the culture is getting it wrong is they think that we have to elevate the roles to the same. Anything you can do, I can do. Because they feel that they're less valuable. But God says, I've created you differently, not the same. 
And your goal is not to blur the line, but to celebrate the line, knowing that you are equally valuable, but you both bring different things to the, to the role and to the kingdom. Do you understand? I want to make sure we get that right, because what happens is, is you can tilt on one side or the other. You can tilt patriarchy and abuse women, or you can tilt feminism and abuse the system and abuse men. Do you understand? And so what we want to do is we want to find God's beauty in celebrating male and female, distinct yet equally valuable. Equally valuable. Amen? Now, there's another thing that we can learn from Genesis chapter 1. The first one was about gender, and the second one is about this word that you see, dominion. Now, according to the context of these scriptures, the image of God, and the image of God can mean a lot of things, but in the context of this scripture, hear me out, the image of God is God's delegated authority to humanity as stewards called to govern creation. Did you know that Adam and Eve were delegated responsibility to cultivate the garden? So, dominion is not an abusive dominance. It's humanity commissioned by God to be the caretakers of the earth on his behalf with the ultimate purpose of cultivating a place where God's presence can dwell and his glory can be made known. And guess what? If you love the earth, there's room for you in Christianity because the earth is holy before the Lord. The earth is holy before the Lord. It doesn't make us new agey or tree huggers. But this is God's creation and we are the caretakers. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, I want, I want to step back from chapter 1 and I want to kind of put this in perspective. Here's what a picture of peace looks like. Man, made in God's image, depended upon God, ruling over the earth in God's character and authority. Man, made in God's image, depended upon God, ruling over the earth in God's character and authority. So let me give you just a quick little equation here. God's word plus God's image bearers equals God's peace. God's word plus God's image bearers equals God's peace. See, that is a picture of peace, but something happens in chapter 3 that turns the picture of peace into a picture of sin. You see, in chapters 1 and 2, we find man is at peace with God. He's at peace with himself, and he's at peace with the world around him. We're even told that Adam actually gets to name all the animals. There is a beautiful picture here of the world being cultivated by man and man being able to interact with the world. And there's no fear in Genesis 1 and 2. The animals are not afraid of man and man is not. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Man is at peace with himself. He's at peace with his God and he's at peace with the world around him. But chapters, in chapter 3, this peace that's being enjoyed is disconnected. When the image of God is exchanged for an independence of man. Now, the road to disconnection begins with temptation. And that temptation ultimately grows into sin. And sin culminates with separation. Are you with me? Temptation, sin, 
and separation. Let's talk about temptation. If you're still there with your Bibles, you can flip to Genesis chapter 3. And we are going to read verse 1, and then we're going to skip and read verse 4 through 5. So Genesis chapter 3, if you're still with me, we'll start with verse 1, and then we'll skip to verses 4 and 5. Now, I recognize that this morning I'm teaching, and so I want you to stay with me as best as you can. Um, But I believe there's something important as we celebrate Advent season um, that God wants to teach us regarding Christmas. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now let's skip to verses four. Let's skip to verse four and we'll read verse four and five. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, like the first couple, temptation comes to us all through challenges and choices. Here, Adam and Eve are faced with a decision. And all of creation weighs in the balance. Husbands and wives, every day, you're faced with a decision. And your entire family is in the balance. Your sin does not affect you, but it also affects your children. It affects your household. It affects your relationship. When the woman sins, the man is affected. When the man sins, the woman is affected. Our sins are selfish in that we think we are satisfying ourselves, but in the end we find out that 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 satisfaction was short-lived and it satisfied us for a moment and hurt our families for a lifetime. This is how sin and temptation work. And I want you to see this. And I want you guys to kind of, so every sin, every temptation, excuse me, comes to us through challenge and choice. Here we see Adam and Eve are faced with a decision and all of creation weighs in the balance. And as God governs, The question is this, will they remain dependent upon God and stay obedient to his word? Or will they rely on themselves and give in to the temptation of the serpent? So I want to give you a definition and an irony in this story. And the definition is this, based on this story, temptation occurs, hear me out, temptation occurs when an external stimulus leads to an internal questioning of God's word. When something on the outside causes you to question God's rule and word on the inside. You could even say the serpent here is acting as a false prophet. Teaching false truth. With the intention of disrupting the peace in the garden. Now here's the irony of the story. And the irony is twofold. First, if the couple understood their identity... The serpent's, wood, the serpent's words would have been powerless against them. What do I mean by that? I want you to think about it. Their temptation to be like God was pointless because they were already created in his image. Are you with me? You see that? The serpent says, you know, God doesn't want you to do this because he knows in that day your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. <laughs> But that temptation is pointless when you realize, wait a minute, I was already created in the image of God. I'm already like him. Are you with me? 
And secondly, the irony gets a little more interesting because God's image has empowered them to take dominion. God's image empowers them to exercise authority over all the beasts of the field, which certainly includes snakes. Are you with me? So by obeying the serpent, they were literally forfeiting the God-given authority they already had over that serpent in the first place. I wish some of you would understand this because this is heavy. When we act in opposition to God's word, the very thing that we have been authorized to take authority over will have authority over us. When we act outside of God's word, we exchange authority. This is what Adam and Eve did. They had authority over that snake, yet they allowed the snake to have authority over them. And what happens is those who were meant to govern the earth on God's behalf instead rebel against the creator by obeying one of his creatures. Isn't that amazing? They rebelled against the creator by obeying one of his creatures. This is where the very first sin is committed. Many of us know the story. And if you're still with me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. This is where the very first sin is committed. Genesis 3, 6. It says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight in the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the husbands that like to say, you know, it's the woman that's in first, right? What comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? See, it's right there in Scripture, right? Yes, the serpent chose to approach the woman first. He did. And yes, she took first the fruit. But as she walked back to her husband, who was supposed to be a spiritual covering in her life, instead of covering her, he joined her. I want you to know that marriage is a, there is a equal parts, but there are different roles to play here. Wow. Eve had hers, Adam had his, and they both failed. Wow. And I, I, to be honest with you, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, you wouldn't even think about it, but it, we can literally spend years on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We could talk about false prophets. We could talk about false religions. We could talk about marriages and relationships in this, these chapters. So full. God's word is so full, so heavy. So scripture says she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You know, I'm going to go off script just a little bit here. You know, they say when a woman, when a woman comes to the Lord, when a married woman comes to the Lord, that there's a certain percentage that the entire household comes to the Lord. But did you know that that percentage shoots up exponentially when the man comes to know the Lord? I, I don't want to quote it exactly, but it's something like 20 to 30% of the time when a woman comes to the Lord that the husband and the family may follow. But when the man comes to the Lord, it's almost a 90% time that the entire family will follow. Again, this is not about putting women down. This is about saying, church, our men need to rise up. And if we, keep, if we keep denigrating the role of a man and we keep shoving him aside and we keep pushing maleness aside, then we will create a lethargic church where the women do everything and the men don't lead. We need men and women to rule and lead in the house with God's authority. Amen? Now I want you to notice something about the first sin. 
There's nothing crude or indecent about it. You notice that? I mean, they ate a tree. What's wrong with eating a tree, right? I mean, there was no sexual immorality. (laughs) There wasn't no, like, murder or anything else. The very first sin that occurred was when the first couple decided for themselves what was good and evil. Are you with me? They imagined that they could safely be their own God. So they took the fruit. And I want, to, I want you to get this about sin. All sin is a matter of trust and independence. All sin is a matter of trust and independence. What do I mean by that? Either it will be God's word or my word. God's rule or my rule. God's glory or my glory. The first human couple and like the first human couple, the decision to leave things in God's hands or take them up into my own hands will always determine the peace. The decision to leave it in God's hands or put it in my own hands will always determine my peace and the peace of my relationship, the peace of my family, and the peace of the environment around me. Now I want you to know that the moment the couple sinned, Everything shifted. And separation began to occur. I'm going to go quickly through some of these verses. In chapter 3, verse 7, Scripture says their eyes were opened. They hid from the presence of God. And guilt was introduced to the world. Do you guys hear that? The moment they sinned, separation occurred. And I want you to see this. Scripture says their eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. And shame, I said guilt, but in shame is introduced to the world. What a beautiful thing when shame doesn't exist. All of a sudden, shame entered into the world. That's in verse, th- that's in verse 7. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, And they were aware of their sin. They hid from the presence of God, and guilt was introduced to the world. And then if you continue to read through verses 11 through 13, God confronts them regarding the truth. And then blame was introduced to the world. (laughs) It paints a really interesting picture. In Genesis 1 and 2, shame, guilt, and blame didn't exist. I didn't move you guys as much as it moved me. I imagine that going a little differently. (laughs) I know you're listening. I know you're listening. Shame, guilt, and blame was introduced to the world. Can we just imagine a world without shame, guilt, and blame? Can you imagine your relationship without shame, guilt, and blame? Would there be any divorce? How beautiful would life be if we didn't have to live with those three ugly things? The man blames God. You know what he says? He goes, well, don't look at me. It's the woman you gave me. So man's interesting. Here's what man does. Man not only blames the woman, but he blames God simultaneously. He's like, don't look at me. Blame her. And by the way, you gave her to me. You created that. That's on you. (laughs) Women, don't go home and use this scripture now. Some of you like, see what Pastor Phil said. Because you're not off the hook neither. Because a woman's like, it's that snake you made. It's the snake. He's blaming God and the snake. The dog ate my homework. But listen, the peace that was enjoyed in chapters 1 and 2 is disconnected when sin is introduced in chapter 3. Now, let me describe to you these two very different worlds. 
a world of peace and a world of sin. And it happens in a matter of one chapter. Let me tell you about the world of peace. Ready? Here it is. Man made in God's image, dependent upon God, ruling over the earth in God's character and authority, characterized by mankind at peace with God, at peace with himself, and at peace with the world around him. Now let's look at a picture of sin. Man made in God's image, choosing to depend on himself rather than God, ruling over the earth in his own image, characterized by guilt, shame, and blame. I want to conclude this morning's message. Some of you are excited because you think you're going to be leaving in two minutes. This conclusion is a little hefty. (laughs) Give me 10. Amen. You know, conclusion is a buzzword. Everyone's like, okay, when you say that, man, intention's lost. People are already out at Pizza Hut. (laughs) And I mean that in a very respectful way. But I want to conclude this morning's message with a a consequence and a promise given to this new world because of sin. There's a consequence and a promise. And I want to start with the bad news first. Everyone, anybody ever came up to you and says, hey, okay, I got some good news and bad news. Which one you want? Some of us are like, give me the bad news so I can be disappointed first. And then hopefully the good news is good enough to lift me up. And then someone ever said, well, no, they're kind of both the same. You're kind of like, wait, what? What did you do? Playing all these tricks. So if you're like me, you probably like to start with the bad news first. So let's start with the consequences. Towards the end of the story in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, God pronounces what some could rightfully call curses, but I think of them as judgments and the result of sin. And although there are several pronouncements, there seems to be a major theme throughout the entire pronouncement. Hear me out. The consequence of sin is the absence of peace and the presence of conflict. The consequences of sin is the absence of peace and the presence of conflict. In chapter 3, verse 14, the serpent will be addressed first. And what this is most famous for, the most famous judgment against the serpent, is the fact that he'll be cursed to wander the ground on the earth on his belly. Everybody knows that. But the conflict theme is prominent In that despite the serpent's desire to dominate humanity, it will in fact ultimately be crushed by the seed of the woman. Oh, you guys like that. Sound like good news. But you see the conflict where the serpent wants to dominate. Ultimately, the woman's seed will dominate it. Now, if you skip to verse 16, the woman will be addressed next. And again, some of the things that's most famous for is the woman will have pain in bearing children. All the pregnant women, all the women with children, mothers said amen, and maybe not amen. And God, why? Probably. But listen to this. Even though pain in childbearing will be mentioned first, it's the conflict with her husband that will cause the most tension. As a result of sin... The woman will seek to control her husband, but instead will be ruled over rather than led by him. 
Listen to me before some of you start saying, what is this about? Now, you remember the beauty of gender in chapters 1 and 2. After chapter 3, sin will deeply damage and distort gender roles in human society. Marriages will fail. Families will be destroyed. Extreme patriarchal societies will rise up. And extreme feminist societies will come against. The pendulum of conflict will continue to swing back and forth between male and female. And our world will give rise to such abuses as pornography and sex trafficking. Many will even come to hate the very gender God so uniquely and wonderfully crafted them to be. Conflict. Finally, in verse 17 through 19, the theme of conflict will continue with the man. Not only will he encounter tensions in his relationship with the woman, but the very ground he seeks to master will grow thorns and thistles and will ultimately reclaim him back to the dust. Man will work the ground and the ground will fight back. And not just in the sweat of his brow will we, he have to work, but the land that he's trying to master will try to master him. And not only that, but the relationship with the woman will find itself at odds and tensions throughout history. Are you with me? And ultimately, God said, you will return back to the what? The dust. Back to the ground. See this. What started out as peace with God, peace with himself, and peace with the world around him has now turned into separation from God, conflict with himself, and conflict with the world around him. But I'm here to tell you, don't lose hearts. Because even though there's a consequence of conflict, God has given us a promise of peace. And this is what Christmas is all about. It's like, where is he going to pull Christmas out of Genesis 1? Christmas, and I said this earlier, is not about your tree, but it is about a tree. It's not about your gifts, but it is about a gift. And again, it's not about Buddy the Elf, although I love Buddy, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Here it is. Ready for this? Christmas is about this fact. In the midst of pain, God has given us a promise of peace. That's what Christmas is about. In the midst of pain, God has given us a promise of peace. God has allowed us to hope against hope. God has allowed us to think for something better than where it's actually at. In the midst of pain, God has given us a promise. This is Christmas. And he's given us a promise of perfect peace. He's given a promise of the peace that passes all understanding. He gives us the promise of the Prince of Peace. One will come. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. While God is judging the serpent, he says something so powerful. To the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. And here's Christmas. 
You will bruise his heel, serpent, but he'll bruise your head. He'll bruise your head, you'll bruise his heel. You'll hurt him, but he'll crush you. You see, the moment sin entered, God had a plan. You might be in sin right now, God has a plan. The moment pain entered, God had a plan. God is not caught off guard. He's not up there thinking, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do next with that one. I wish he wouldn't have gone that way. I wish he wouldn't have done that. I'm at a loss now. He has a plan. And your sin hasn't disqualified the plan. In fact, it put it into effect. The moment sin entered, God had a plan. Verse 15 has been labeled as the Proto-Evangelium. That's Greek. And what it means is this, the first announcement of the gospel. In that serpent is Satan himself. And in that offspring of the woman is none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now watch. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. The motif of the offspring of the woman will be picked up. That motive, that motif of the offspring and the woman, the offspring and the woman. Serpent, you will be at odds with the woman and the offspring, but an offspring is coming that will bruise your head. That's in chapter 3. That, that will pick up again in chapter 4, verse 25. Let me show you how. It'll pick up with the birth of a child named Seth. A birth of a child named Seth. And the entire Old Testament will trace back to one single line of Seth's descendants, declaring that this line will eventually produce a king through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed and will find peace. And the rest of the scripture will be all about Seth's line. And Seth will turn to Abraham. Abraham turned to Isaac and Jacob. Jacob will turn to Moses. And Moses will take the people out and deliver them. And Joshua, so on and so forth, will go through the judges and the kings. Will go through the prophets. Will go through King David, who will be called the son. Jesus will be the son of David. The Messiah will come through the line of King David. And will go beyond that to Solomon. Then from Solomon to all the kings and the prophets will come and kings will be wicked and evil and conflict will ensue and the prophets will come in and say you're in sin and the kings and the prophets will clash. And finally they'll raise up some prophets that I don't even think they'll know what they'll be saying but they will be announcing and declaring of that seed to come. He'll be wounded for your transgressions. He'll be bruised for your iniquities that by his stripes you will be healed. And then they'll be quiet. They call it 500 years of silence, 400 years of silence. Really, God's not silent during that time. But from the last book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament, and all of a sudden, out of the silence of Scripture, an angelic voice will burst into the scene, declaring to lowly shepherds, not the rich, but the poor, The angels will not appear to the kings. They'll appear to lowly shepherds. And then a star will appear to the kings. And you'll have the entire demographic covered from the rich to the poor. Someone is coming that will break through and bring salvation. Are you with me? Now, I found it really interesting and kind of ironic 
as I continued to listen to the entire U2 song, I was just decided just to listen to it. And uh, there's one more particular lyric in that song, Peace on Earth. Bono sings this, Jesus, can you take some time to throw a drowning man a line, peace on earth? Who knows why he said that? Most likely he's frustrated. But I want to tell you this. That day, man didn't drown, he died. He died in his sin. It wasn't a drowning line he needed, he needed resurrection. He didn't, he didn't need a lifesaver thrown overboard of a boat to bring him in. He was dead in his trespasses. He needed resurrection. But I like to say that Jesus did more than just throw us a line. He came into this earth. He walked this earth. Signs, wonders, and miracles spoke the word of God. And check this out. At the tree of disobedience in the Old Testament, there was another tree of obedience in the New Testament. And where Adam and Eve failed on a tree, Jesus came and claimed victory on a cross, a tree. And this is the beauty of Christmas. And I want to say this one thing this morning, and now I'm finished. Disconnected peace finds hope in repentance. And then if you would just repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, I'm not saying that he's going to come in and you're going to go home today and everything's going to be just perfect. You're still going to be in a world full of conflict. You're going to turn on the news and it's going to remind you. You're going to go home and maybe argue with your spouse today or something petty and it gets too big and it's going to remind you. There's still conflict. And as long as we're on this earth, it's here. But if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sins, the Messiah will come and make a bed and make a room. The Holy Spirit will come into your life and begin to create a kingdom of God inside of you. And then the kingdom of God will come out of you. And everywhere you go and everywhere it would be like Matthew would say, he'd say this, blessed are the peacemakers for they were called the sons of God. And you know what the church is? It's the body of Christ while Christ is away. He'll bring perfect peace, but you and I will go and step out of these buildings and begin to bring the love and the peace of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your Messiah. Thank you, Jesus, for the one who enters into our time and our space. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a humble servant. You left your high and lofty place and you came to a low place. You came to a dirty place. You came to a dark place. Thank you, Jesus, that you came not for those that are healthy, but those who are sick. You came for those that are in pain, not for those that are healed, but those who need healing. Thank you, Jesus, that we serve a God who stooped low, who washed the feet of his followers and came to bring us peace in times and seasons of stress.